Welcome to Three Little Things, a natural health podcast. We've created this space to help you positively navigate the world of holistic and natural well-being, where each week we will explore something new and dive into a diverse range of holistic health topics from all walks of life. As chiropractors, we are equally passionate about helping educate, share and empower you on your well-being journey. Created with you in mind, Three Little Things aims to bring you digestible topics and applicable tools and strategies to help you grow, thrive and live well. So let's dive in. Welcome back to season two of the Three Little Things podcast. I am joined with Lily again and we're back for season two and um, we're really excited for what we're going to bring to you guys, to our listeners this season. We have an amazing arrangement of guests and practitioners and experts coming in to talk about all things health and wellness from such a range and a big diverse range of topics, which is super exciting. So we are yeah, obviously back for season two um, and we, I guess, want to just remind you guys why we're here to do this and what this is all about. Um, and again, welcome any of your feedback and anything or any particular topics that you would like us to cover. Uh, please reach out and let us know and we'll um, tee it up within season two. So Lily, welcome back for season two. Um, tell me a little bit about the basis of Three Little Things and, and why we're doing this podcast. Thank you, Sarah. This is quite exciting for us because we actually um, got through season one um, miraculously <laughs> and we had 10 episodes of that, so that was um, pretty fun and amazing. But this was born of um, a desire to inform our public about the other science that's happening that doesn't actually hit the um, airways very much, especially last year, you know. So about three or four months ago, I think um, I got a bit frustrated and thought, gee, you know, let's inject some positivity into this whole situation and let's give um, individuals a bit more agency. So not, not what to think the whole time, but, but how to think. So we aim to bring um, very evidence-based facts. Um, all the things that we say, well, all things we say are actually heavily um, researched and um, published in journals. Um, but we're not going to make it so heavy scientifically. We actually want to make them more um, digestible and mainstream sort of concepts. And so we introduced the idea of magazine words. And these are all based around our philosophy of the triad of health. And today we'll have a, an amazing person called Jules and she will um, fill in one part of the um, triad. So the triad really is um, structure, which is what Sarah and I do a lot of. Um, which is chiropractic and then there's the chemical part of us so we had a fantastic nutritionist who talked about that and today we have Jules who's going to help us fill in the mental and emotional part of our health so as you can probably imagine all those three things are vitally important to a whole functioning person and we're really into neuroimmunity you know as as all our patients would know we're really into having the best health possible for our patients so just recapping on some magazine words um, homeostasis parasympathetic, sympathetic nervous system, feedback, feed forward, homunculus, vagal tone, vestibular, immune factors, we use the bell curve, uh, we will introduce things like genes, epigenes, and today um, a, a lovely word called the amygdala, which Jules will bring us up to date with. So just to finish up uh, my little bit, it's really the feedback and feed forward we're so interested in. So if you imagine a safety pin, at top of the safety pin, there is a little circle. At the bottom, there's another little circle joined by two um, arcs. The top one will be named the brain or nerve cell, and the bottom circle will be named and the tissue cell. And this continuous feedback and feed forward actually helps the whole organism um, behave well and stay in that homeostatic state. So, so that's my summary. Um, Shall we have our lovely guest introduce herself? Yeah, absolutely. Jules, take it away. Okay. Hi. Um, my name is Julie Preston, or Jules, um, as my friends call me, and um, I'm a registered psychologist here on the Northern Beaches, um, in Mona Vale specifically. Um, born and raised in the Northern Beaches, though I did spend about four years living in London at some point. Um, yeah. Uh, is there anything else that you would yeah, like me to share awesome. about myself? <laughs> share with me what drew you to psychology and what made you kind of go down that pathway to end up where you are today. Okay, I do have a good answer for that one because it was a really um, poignant moment in time. I was 16 years old and I was traveling around Europe with my family and um, at that time I 
was kind of knocking heads a lot with my mom and other family members too. I just didn't feel like I was very understood. And my dad gave me a book. Um, don't know if um, you guys have read it. It's called The Road Less Traveled by mm. Scott Peck. Yes. And it kind of discussed how, um, you know, we could um, look outside ourselves and, and blame others for, you know, how, you know, what's going on for us. Or we could look inside and see, you know, what part we play in. And I think, you know, in terms of those relationships with particularly my mother, um, I, you know, blamed her a lot. And it was the first time that I kind of reflected on myself and, and saw my part and the part that I was playing um, in that relationship and the problems that I was causing. And it really, gosh, it really transformed my relationship with her. And, you know, we've gotten along ever since. And so that was so empowering. And I feel like ever since then, I just have had such a passion for it. Um, you know, when I was supposed to be studying for my HSC, I was reading those books and then I just couldn't believe that I could actually read those books when I started studying psychology at uni. So, um, yeah, that's where it started and took off from there. That's so cool. And I think, um, similar to both Lily and I, you know, having a kind of pathway, you know, into what you do as a as a professional is super important and and something really great because it one helps you relate to to patients and clients that you're seeing, but it also, yeah, gives you that passion to be able to do it every day, which is really cool. Mm -hmm. Um, So what are you going to share with us today, Jules? Share a little bit about, I guess, an overview of what you might be sharing today. Yes. What topics are we going to cover? Well, psychology is really broad, but I was asked to share about something that I was really passionate about. So um, that would absolutely have to um, be um, helping my clients heal from their childhood trauma. Um, for so many reasons, um, but I'll list a few. Um, so most of my clients, firstly, don't come in necessarily unless there's been some, you know, uh, really big events in their life, um, saying, Hey, I've got this childhood trauma. Um, can you help me with it? Some do, um, some who have probably already done a little bit of work, but most of the time they present with, um, you know, addictions, eating disorders, um, anxiety, depression, uh, relationship issues or codependency um so that's what they generally come in for but when you kind of sit with these clients and you dig around a little bit and find out a bit about their history and kind of what led to you know whatever they might be struggling with there's always childhood trauma Mm. you know there's never been a case where i haven't been able to kind of connect um what they're experiencing now to you know some significant traumatic event in their life so or you know more most uh, often there's been you know multiple yeah. traumatic events yeah. or ongoing so um yeah so that's why you know in order to be able to help them you know you can give them really good strategies and you know um some relapse prevention tools to stop them you know uh, relapsing in their addictions for instance but if you don't heal the underlying issues they kind of led them to um to those what we call secondary symptoms you know, they will keep on relapsing. So um, in order to to really treat them, I really feel like that that childhood trauma is like a huge piece mm. in, in their recovery. So Yeah, that's definitely. a really, I mean, I love your story, Jules, because there was that seminal moment, you know, you were mm. 16. And I think for a lot of people, um, there are these moments in their lives, if they would only acknowledge them and then be open to um, pursuing more answers. Mm-hmm. But as you say, people come in with um, their iceberg, you know, and only the tip is showing, that 20% tip is showing. Yes. Yeah. A lot of it is under the surface. You have to mind that, don't you? Absolutely. Yeah, um, yeah the, I love that iceberg analogy. Um, and one quote that I do, you know, which is so relevant to the childhood trauma, it's usually that part that's under the water that you don't see because a lot of, um, you know, those traumas are happening happening very unconsciously. Yeah. Um, that's a, that's a beautiful quote. I think it was Carl Jung who said, if we don't make the unconscious conscious, it will rule our lives, but we'll call it fate. And that's kind of what doing the childhood trauma, um, piece does for you is it kind of makes it conscious, you know, before you're reacting around these traumas that you've got no idea, um, what trauma will do, it will make you overreact to everyday happenings, you know, and you just go, Whoa, what happened there? 
Mm. Um, there's this um, the saying with a lot of you know trauma therapists kind of say is if it's hysterical, it's historical. Mm. If you've just completely overreacted to somebody pushing in line at you know a grocery store, um, more so than probably fits the situation, it, it's probably very likely that there's some kind of history behind that. Um, and so that's what trauma does to us and how it can get in the way of us, you know, um, living, you know, fulfilling lives or, you know, you know, affecting our quality of life anyway. So, I mean, they're really beautiful parallels with um, yeah. our work. You know, yeah. people come in with um, a pain somewhere or a headache or whatever. And besides having not having a brain tumour or meningitis, you know, <laughs> there's all these other kind of causes. And most of these things are historical, aren't they? Mm-hmm. You know, but um, we've all managed to to have these coping mechanisms, so layer upon layer upon yeah. layer, you know, and yeah. eventually um, it's so buried, and it takes a really skilled practitioner mm. to say, well, what is it, you know, and, and, and being patient too, I guess, letting people tell their story um, um, safely. Mm-hmm. Yeah, oh, it's got to be safely, yeah, absolutely, they definitely, uh, you, you know, need to feel safe to tell that story, otherwise, you know, they'll just get re-triggered and, and mm. saying it's going to be a very gentle approach um, and I loved what you said about you know the coping strategies that kind of bury the you know the symptoms um, because that's what you know that's what kids do is um, they learn these ingenious survival adaptations to survive um, so much so that you know that trauma can really get buried so much um yeah so the question was to how do how i do treat you unpack it yeah yeah um so in terms of the trauma so, so it depends where they're at there's no cookie cutter solution um to it so sometimes the first piece of helping to heal from trauma is stabilizing them so if you're in active addiction, doing that trauma work is not going to work because mm. whatever we do in session, it's going to be thrown out the window. If you're, um, you know, drinking or drugging, you know, after each session, you know, the brain is not settled. It can't really absorb and change in such a place. Um, if there's safety issues like self-harm or suicidal ideation, we need to find... and they. They are just coping strategies. Mm. You know, they are one of those, you know, particularly if we talk about self-harm, why someone might self-harm. It is a way for them to avoid their emotional pain, most most often, um, by giving themselves the pain they can control. Um, So, you know, that is a survival strategy too for people to self-harm. So, um, you know, sometimes we need to talk about some other self-soothing strategies that can use that also doesn't hurt their body and put them at risk. So um, giving them new tools to self-soothe and to regulate their emotions and being able to tolerate stress is sometimes the first step before we can even touch the trauma. Um, Looking at their current situation, um, you know, some clients come and they're in a domestically violent um, relationship. So we need to start a safety plan around keeping them safe because um, if you're being re-traumatised, we can't do the old trauma work either. Yeah, for sure. So, um, yeah, so sometimes it's a lot about that and reducing stress um, in the brain because in order to do that work, we have to be... Um, in our frontal lobes which is the higher order um, part of the brain which does all the the logical problem solving thinking Um, so if you're super stressed not getting sleep um, you know not eating well then that work can't be done so sometimes it's you know doing a bit of problem solving with them to find out how we can just reduce those stresses that we can Mm. Um, yeah and after that you know it's really important to um, get their story straight, to put a narrative to that experience, to explore what were some of those um, negative childhood events that might be playing out for them today, which is really helpful to do because if you can bring that to awareness, then you can um, learn about what might be your triggers, which is huge because what happens to the brain when we are triggered is... um, that amygdala in our brain, which is, for those who don't know what the amygdala does, I like to call it um, the smoke detector. 
um, it says, is there, is there smoke or is there not uh, smoke? Am I safe or am I unsafe? There's two modes to um, the amygdala. If it deems that you are unsafe, it sends a message, you know, down to your nervous system to react. You know, do I fight? Do I flight? Do I freeze? Um, there's another one which is um, appease or fawn. Um, and then we react from it. So the problem is if we have um, trauma, that amygdala is going to be telling you there's smoke all the time. Or it's going to be telling you smoke when there's no smoke, mm. you know, that you're unsafe. Um, and when that amygdala fires off and tells you that you're unsafe, those frontal lobes of our brain, the higher order ones, the one that's very much grounded in time and logical and can do, you know, that the one that you take to work and, you know, be really successful mm. at your job with, they shut down. And also the verbal area of your brain shuts down as well. And so you're not doing your best thinking. Mm. You know, you're not thinking straight. You're seeing someone who's in a full-blown panic attack. You know, there's no talking to someone. They're complete. They're gone. They've literally flipped their lid in terms of the top part. You know, those frontal lobes have just gone offline. So going back to why it's important to know our triggers, if we, there's this really cool part of the brain um, we call, we'll call it the noticing part of the brain, is when we can become aware that we are being triggered and, um, and that these triggers are just old memories, they're just not some old trauma memories getting triggered, what we can do is we can manage to keep those frontal lobes, frontal lobes online. Um, and then those frontal lobes can tell the amygdala, actually you are safe. Mm-hmm. You are absolutely fine. This is just an old trauma memory. So um, in that, we can start to control these reactions that we get. Um, so we're not getting triggered and, and you know, l- losing our, you know, minds, you know, uh, over these everyday things. So that's why, that's one reason yeah. um, why it's so important to be able to tell your story and to put those little pieces together. Yeah. Yeah. Do you find that it can take some time with clients for them to actually recognise and accept that their childhood could have been traumatic? Because I think sometimes the word trauma or traumatic can be traumatic for some people. Like, mm. you know, if I think of my childhood, I'm, I had a really wonderful childhood, childhood, but that doesn't mean that there weren't elements of traumatic events or experiences. But I think it probably took me a while to accept that that was okay. Like, you know, I had a be- that saying that there was trauma in my childhood isn't saying that I had a really traumatic childhood, if that yeah. makes any sense at all. Um, so I, I find, well, I'm asking you, I guess, if you find that that can take some time for people to work on to go, oh, hang on a minute, I, I have to recognise that yeah. maybe some things did happen that I wasn't, subcon- I wasn't consciously aware of. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, I was one of those people as yeah. well. Um, so, um, and I, want, I do want to, you just reminded me, I need to talk about the different types of traumas as well, because some traumas are more identifiable, identifiable as traumas, you know, yeah. anyone recognise them, and some of them are, are more covert, yeah. which are, you know, often get dismissed or normalised, um, either from, you know, yourself or from the other people around you. Um, but yeah, some people, you know, you start asking them about their history and they go, oh, why? You know, this has got nothing to do with mum and dad and, and want to be protective over their parents because they think that they, you, you're there to kind of blame mum and dad and that's yeah. not the case. You know, I, you know, from my work, 99.9% of parents are doing the best they could with the tools and the knowledge and experience that they have. Yeah. Um, so yeah, so it can take time and it can Mm. be really gentle and you've got to be very careful about what you might say, um, about certain things. Um, because yeah, understandably you want to defend your family because you love them and and things like that. And, um, traumas don't have to happen in the family system. They can happen outside of it. Um, and sometimes people's reaction to defend their trauma is because, a, there's a lot of shame around the trauma. There's, mm. you know, trauma comes, particularly childhood, with a lot of shame. Kids blame themselves because of, they're very egocentric. If bad yeah. things happen, it must be because I'm bad. Um, but also because maybe they're not ready to, you know, yes. to acknowledge it's yeah. trauma. Um, yes. Which yeah. is how they probably survive childhood. Denial is a very good defense mechanism yeah. um, because I don't have the resources to um, deal with the feelings that go with it. Um, so I'm going to pretend it didn't happen or I'm going to minimize it. So, and we continue to do it until yeah, maybe we come to therapy or yeah. something, you know, mm. um, something comes to clicks, yeah. and read something or, yeah. yeah. So 
leading on from that, Jules, tell us a little bit about, I like the how you phrase it as little trauma and big trauma. Yeah. Can you kind of dive into that a little bit? Yeah, so, um, yeah, so when I say trauma, I do use it in quite a broad sense. Yeah. Um, it can be anything from the yeah big T traumas that we we say you know there are uh, you know sexual assault you know profound neglect um, being in a car crash or a plane crash or having like a parent die um, those are one of those ones that you know inarguably most people accept that that's a trauma um, and yeah they have big significant impacts on our life the little T traumas um, often go dismissed mm. so they can be most commonly like forms of emotional abuse like um, insults put downs you know you might have um, a perfectionistic parent who put um, their unrealistic expectations on you um, bullying in the playground mm. um, having parents who divorce being you know move, moving around a lot um, what else yeah, just having a, a parent who might have been overly critical or a teacher who might have been overly critical to you. Um, so they also have a huge impact on who we are, particularly those, you know, developmental years. So zero to 17, um, but especially zero to seven. Mm. Um, because those years we are learning, like our brain um, is moving and changing the most I don't know if you've used the term neuroplasticity, but yeah. that's, yeah, about how malleable our brain is and how much it changes, particularly um, in those years. And we're learning about who we are, who we are in relation to people. We learn about other people and the world around us, whether we can trust people or not. So if we've, um, you know, we've been put down or been overly criticised, um, we are learning things like, I'm not good enough, I'm unworthy, I'm bad. And those really, what we call maladaptive neural networks in our brain, really kind of get ingrained during those years. So even though on the outside, they might not look as bad as the big T traumas, emotional abuse has the biggest impact on those kind of maladaptive networks about, you know, who we are as a person, particularly. And then, then comes, you know, its friend, which is, you know, toxic shame, mm. which... Um, yeah, a lot of people with childhood trauma struggle with. Yeah. yeah. So in that sort of circumstance where we're talking, you know, that zero to seven, obviously in chiropractic, like chiropractically as well, we treat a lot of kids in that age range as well. And it's a really beautiful time based, you know, based off neuroplasticity and all that kind of stuff to be adjusting them. Um, but from your standpoint in psych, zero to seven in terms of memory. So if you have an, you know, an adult that's coming to you that may have gone through some trauma from that zero to seven, there's obviously, or there could be, I guess, a lack of memory there. Mm -hmm. And so does that kind of tap into it as well when you're uncovering some of these things that may have been traumatic mm -hmm. um, where the patient isn't actually able to recognize specific events or things that kind of went on? Yeah, so that, yeah. you know, that does put a bit of a spanner in the works, the fact that um, the brain's not fully developed, so we don't mm -hmm. often have those kind of memories yeah but what the what kids often have is feeling memories yeah. from those kinds of, of um events so they might just like feel this great sense of you know um unsafety in the world because of something that might have happened when they're in their cot or something yeah. you know yeah um and sometimes it's it's hard to put a narrative to it unless we've got some good um you know, we've got some people to ask questions yeah. about and we get, you know, a, a nice honest response about the childhood that they might have had or an older sibling to fill in the gaps. Um, but you don't need to heal from uh, that. You don't need to know the story to heal from the trauma. Yeah. Cool. Um, there is a lady who says the symptoms speak uh, louder than the story. Yeah. You know, even just knowing what your symptoms are can give us a good idea of what might have gone on. Mm. Um, but yeah, you can actually do some good trauma processing even if you don't remember what happened and you've got no person to kind of fill in the gaps for you yeah cool. i think so. we sort of slightly touched upon this um end of last season with the brainwaves um yeah discussion you yeah know, just saying that um from not to seven most kids are in that theta brainwave yeah. mm -hmm. um, state which is just above delta so you know alpha is as we are now you know or mm -hmm. high beta so about 25 cycles per second and then there's um alpha which is lower so it's daydreamy about eight to twelve cycles yeah. and then we've got um, theta which is um, slightly slower about four cycles very hypnotic yes and then delta that's 
two cycles. So that hypnotic brain mm-hmm. wave layer, which is predominant in um, children's brains, yeah. things go unfiltered. Mm. Yes. Yeah. Absolutely. I actually heard a talk about that particular, um, you know, state of mind that that children are in. So. Yeah, and also they haven't developed that um, ability to do the critical thinking either. You know, now if someone says, well, you smell, I go, no, actually, no, I don't. You know, (laughs) I can say, you know, I can filter that information in and out and decide what's true or not true or questionable. Mm. You know, maybe I need some more information. Children don't have that. Yeah, and And there's been so much research, mm. too. The mother craft nurse that um, I was talking to a while ago, many, many years ago, she was saying when you're changing your baby's nappies, Try and have a more neutral expression. <laughs> you know, if you screw your nose up and just go, oh, dirty, you know, um, yeah. that child might have ankyloparesis one day, you know, like hide in a corner and do a poo because, oh, mummy actually, her face changes, you know. Well, these days with Botox, no one's face changes. <laughs> right? But, um, you know, she was saying, you know, try and be reasonably neutral because then toilet training would not be such an arduous task. Yeah. So even funny little things like our facial expressions mm. are... Uh, voice inflection yeah you know that's as you say i love it you know it's that feeling um feeling emotions yeah yeah memories feeling memories yeah Mm. what you experience like yeah emotions so when we're triggered um with trauma memories work quite differently it's that when we're generally triggered with a trauma memory it's not like um it's not the same feeling as if i ask you how your tri- last trip to the grocery store was, for instance. Mm. So if I asked you that, you'd go, oh, yeah, good, I, you know, bought this and, you know, um, and this is what I did there and I went at this time. And you can tell that that was, you know, that memory is more distant, it's less vivid because you're actually not there anymore. Um, where trauma memories are quite different in that way. So when we experience it, we more experience it like a feeling, we can't necessarily connect it unless we've done the therapy. Um, it feels very vivid and it doesn't feel distant. So it feels often like it's happening here and now. So if your trauma is... So just say, if I can give you an example of how a trauma memory around the grocery store might look like. So just say you went to the grocery store and it was held up at gunpoint and you were you know, held hostage until the robbers got out. Mm. Um, what happens... Um, to that trauma memory is firstly your brain becomes flooded with cortisol um, because your brain is so overwhelmed the memory doesn't consolidate like the rest of your normal memories which fits into um, your adaptive processing part of your brain where it integrates with the other times you went to the grocery store and got stuff Um, so what happens so it stays it stays really vivid, it doesn't distant, so it's like frozen in time, but it also, um, it's like it's quite fuzzy, mm. because that part of the brain that makes memory, um, which is the hippocampus, again, another magazine word, um, gets coated in cortisol, and it also gets quite fuzzy, so that fuzziness of that memory means it becomes overgeneralized. So what you might find yourself doing is, you know, you start to do things like, I'm going to avoid going to that grocery store rather than saying that that was just a time and an event and I've actually got home and I'm safe and everything's okay. Or, or you might avoid grocery stores in general, Mm. or, you know, you might avoid even leaving your house in general. Like that's kind of how trauma, because you feel unsafe now and you don't, your brain, logically you, you understand that it's not happening now, but your, that trauma memory that's being triggered is saying it's happening right here and now. It's, and so, it's very intense. It's it a real organic expression of it then. So mm-hmm. let's say from a psychologist's point of view, how would you help that person over that? Yeah, gosh, mm. there is um, so many different modalities mm. that um, you could use for that. Um, integration. So what we really want to do is we want to integrate that memory in a way that it's more adaptive. Um, so in the part of your brain, which is saying, you know, unsafe, 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 we want to link it with the other part of the brain, which is saying, it's all right. It was a long time ago. Um, you're safe. You can do that with talk therapy, identifying your triggers, you know, there's certain situations that's going to come up. Um, using breathing is another really good tool to actually trigger that parasympathetic um, 
nervous system. So that's the calm down response because, you know, if you're triggered, you're most likely in that fight or flight for that particular situation anyway. Um, there is another therapy that um, is very, particularly for, you know, for those kind of um, incident, single incident traumas, but also for complex trauma from childhood. Um, and it's called um, EMDR, mm, yeah. which stands for Eye Movement Desensitization and Reprocessing. So, um, like, that would be a perfect scenario where, you know, what we do is we get you to focus on the worst part of that event. So, you've got to be willing to um, and able to tolerate. So, sometimes we need to do a lot of stabilizing and grounding and give you lots of self soothing tools and get you to do lots of breathing or yoga or mindfulness, doing that kind of bottom-up stuff um, around calming down your nervous system is a really helpful um, start. And we get you to um, move your eyes from left to right, left to right, left to right, very quickly. And what actually happens to that trauma memory is it pulls it out of long-term memory into your working memory. And because we're taxing your working memory by making you do left, right, left, right, um, it then changes the nature of the memory. It breaks it down so it's no longer frozen in time, that it reintegrates in a way that with the rest of the information, like I got home, I'm safe, that happened a long time ago, um, I'm no longer there anymore. Um, so you still remember it, but it just loses that vividness. You no longer get triggered, you know, every time you go to a grocery store or thinking about it. So that's that for that particular scenario, that would be a very good um, a treatment uh, way that cool. we can do that. It's a very cool thing, but you don't yeah. need to just use eye movements, any kind of what they say bilateral. So yeah. left, right, like tapping left, right, left, right, you know, can work too. But so it's interesting. So everything you're saying, I'm pretty into my neuroscience framework. And mm-hmm. uh, yeah, are you doing that too? Yeah. 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 Like, interesting. I've, I've never heard of that though. That's fascinating. It's, yeah. yeah. Oh, it's, yeah. It's, is it um, yeah. the Kirk's work? Is it, um, is it Bezel, Bezel van der Kerk? Ah, Bezel van der Kolk, yeah, he, yes. he uses it. Yeah. Um, but what yeah. he calls a trauma. Yes, yeah. he uh, he definitely talks about EMDR quite a bit, but mm. yeah, Fran, Francine Shapiro, That's right, who yeah. just passed away recently, actually, mm. she um, developed that. Um, yeah, I remember reading a lot about that yeah. a few years ago, mm. yeah. yeah. And this requires, I mean, the skill of the practitioner, you, um, and the trust in the practitioner, to bring up these memories for you to help them through it because I wonder whether in the end the big T's although they're horrible are probably easier than the small T's to um to tease out do you find yeah that yeah. I I do find um well you know firstly they're more acknowledged by mm. my clients they're like oh yeah I've had my, this. Yeah. I've had this. My friends say it's trauma. You know, TV says it's trauma. Yeah. You know, I see um, that it's there. Yeah. But the more, yeah, the more covert ones yeah. was, um, yeah, people normalize it, minimize it. Or, you know, yeah, I was a really difficult child. Or, yeah, I was, mm. you know, um, I was bad, you know. And they also really believe it because it's so, you know, you kind of look at that and go, well, it's, you know, you wouldn't be taken away from your family by you know family and community services if you know your parent insults you every day mm. even though it is abusive you know so it's harder to recognize yeah you're getting yeah. your physiological ne- needs met um but you know you're also not getting your emotional needs met and yeah. um yeah. the present day parallel that um i just anecdotally i've witnessed is if you're in a dinner party you know if someone walks in with a black eye you know sort of clearly know what happened before yeah. the dinner party you know to that person but through the dinner party where there's often wine involved you begin to hear people's banter with each other mm-hmm. and and couple banter is interesting isn't it because mm-hmm. um a lot of small teas um, begin to emerge after a few glasses of wine <laughs> there's a little nitpicking of um each other you know so you don't have to slap someone across the face you can just slowly undermine them gradually over <laughs> you know dinner or 20 years or whatever yeah. it is yes and that's so subtle because it's very damaging and all the clientele i would see you know um, women for instance yeah um, they're quite under stress and traumatized, but it's hard to pinpoint for mm. them what darling is doing, you know? So, mm-hmm. And yeah. what about sort of self-trauma too, from an emotional standpoint, right? I think that's a, a huge thing. Well, I, well I, I feel like it's a huge thing, but I don't know if you see much of that. Like we're talking a lot about partners emotionally abusing or parents or siblings or being bullied at school. Mm-hmm. Um, 
I mean, and maybe the self-harming in terms of the emotional stuff can come from those traumatic events, but I feel like in today's day and age, and maybe it's a social media thing, there's a lot of self-esteem mm. putting ourselves down. Interesting. Um, mm. And I think over time that probably creates quite a traumatic, or I mean, yeah, traumatic experience for that person. Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, it can do. Um, like, I, I think, I feel like in Australia particularly, we've got that tall poppy syndrome. So I hope I'm answering your question right with yeah. by what you're saying about putting yourself down before other people can do it. Um, yes. Because... Um, you know, if you're doing really well and you, you say you're doing really well, they'll go, oh, you're a bit up yourself. <laughs> so it's kind of part of our particular culture. I think um, England's probably quite the same as well this way, that we kind of play ourselves down and we, you know, self-deprecate quite a bit. Mm. Um, and, I, you know, I was a couple of interviews that I've um, um, listened to around um, some really big pop stars who were bullied because they were on Home and Away or because they did um, they, uh, they were in a really popular band that really took off and they actually got targeted and bullied at school to the point where people like uh, you know Sally from Home and Away she used to, she got like followed um, home on the train and people used to pour things on her head and um, and that was very much tall poppy syndrome where in america you know people who do well get Mm. kind of idolized it's the opposite like they get put on a real big you know um Mm. platform so i think particularly in australia we do run the risk of um constantly putting ourselves down um and we'll listen you know we say it enough we'll start believing those things about us but it is a safety thing it's a survival strategy because if i put myself down first then you can't do it for me you know Mm. so um yeah yeah, for sure. Um, and I know like a lot of what you do, Jules, is working through childhood trauma, but I'm assuming there's just as much adult trauma as there is childhood trauma to yeah. go through. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and I think sometimes because of our childhood trauma, um, we'll have more of that adult trauma as well, yeah. depending on what, like, for instance, there's, I don't know what the exact statistic is, but if you grew up with family um, domestic violence, then you're more likely to be in a domestically violent relationship when you're older, either as the victim or the perpetrator, um, if you feel like um, you're, you know, unworthy and don't deserve anything, then you're more likely to stay in a toxic relationship. Yeah. Um, what we have is we often have those um, people who have um, sometimes, this is not all the time, but yeah, you know, experienced childhood sexual abuse might become uh, might make very sexually risky decisions as an adult or later on. Um, there is some thoughts that that's part of them recreating their trauma in a way that they can control it because they had no control as a child. So they then become re-traumatised as adults. Yeah. Um, and, of course, there's those, you know, adults who don't have huge trauma but, you know, bad things happen to them as an adult. Um but yeah, there is yeah definitely. So there must be some interesting problems. theories regarding sort of nature and nurture, you know, because mm. um, I'm looking at a beautiful photo of a little girl. So let's um, put it out there that Jules has got this gorgeous little daughter. Thank um, you. <laughs> yes, who is of very strong personality. I will say, you know, her personality. Uh, so begs the question then: uh, raw material, you know, mm-hmm. people are born with. I don't know. It's it's, I, it's such a philosophical question, isn't it? Do some people have stronger raw material than others? Hmm. Hmm. In terms of their resilience to trauma, do you think? Maybe. I, I what I would like, yeah, what I would say about that um, is no trauma is ever experienced the same. Hmm. So just because someone's had um, this, what looks like the same trauma as you, like you might have grown in a household where you might you might have been both physically hit, like you might have been siblings. Um, yeah, like the meanings that we create around that trauma is how we how um, we will cope with it. You know, so um, and that you know often comes down to those individual personality differences that are just so you know that nature element of how we might interpret that that trauma. So you might have two people um, have totally two different experiences. Um, and deal with it in a totally different way. Um, just like you can have two people get into a car accident, one person develops post-traumatic stress disorder, and one person has a bit of a shaky um, time for a few days afterwards but recovers quite well. And I think those individual differences can make 
Mm. I mean, the, the case in point is people returning from Vietnam, you know, or World War mm-hmm. II or whatever, you know, and all the different um, personalities involved, and some people have terrible um, you know, post-traumatic stress, mm-hmm. and other mothers seem to get on with some kind of life, don't they? Yeah. Mm. Yeah, it's definitely worth dealing with, because it sounds <laughs> crippling. Yeah. You know, mm-hmm. um, I think, I mean, we know people in, in our lives, I'm sure, who are in their 60s and 70s and beyond, who still carry the um, the effects of trauma that they've never um, dealt with, mm-hmm. you know, either physically or mentally, you know, they're still um, reliving it. And Which is tough, right? Because generationally that is going to be passed down also. I remember when we had Brooke on, who um, is a doula, and we were speaking about birth trauma and yeah. how that generationally can filter through and really create this narrative around what the next generation's birth, experience of birthing and labour is going to be. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, I totally agree. I think, you know, there's definitely people that in their 70s and 80s, I'm sure, that are holding on to trauma that um, are passing that down unintentionally probably, but yeah. passing it down to people in their life. Yeah, there is so much actually now out, um, some really good books as well, on that transgenerational trauma. Yeah. Um, absolutely. Um, you know, there, there's lots of studies about the people, like the children of the, the veterans, the war veterans who have a high rate of depression, you know, Holocaust survivors, um, kids, you know, as well, yeah. because of, you know, you're, you're living with someone with trauma. Um, there's also quite a bit of um, research on even just... Um, on the epigenetics of it. Yeah. So there is, like, they did a study on the women who were pregnant, who lived in, like, yeah. within a five-mile um, radius of uh, the Twin Towers when they got hit on 9-11. And um, all those um, babies that later were born with, I think it was lower cortisol levels, which is one of the stress hormones in your ability to bounce back after a stressor. So, like, the epigenetic, like, the genetics of these kids were actually altered um, mm-hmm. while they were, you know, in utero. So um, there's that as well. Which is fascinating as well. It's, it's really fascinating. Reason, you know, because, yeah, I mean, of course. The, the way we all fire off our neurons with the sodium potassium pump, you know, that's sort of determined genetically as well. Yeah. I mean, you know, it takes some people a long time to get out of bed. Other people just jump out of bed, you mm-hmm. know. I mean, um, these abilities are passed down through our <clears throat> cells and their, and their responses, all the mitochondria. So, I mean, there's a lot of research yeah. about to come out too, you know. Yeah. It's not just that someone's living with someone who's traumatized, but just that they actually own the cells that um, were made by the other person as well. Yeah, absolutely. So it's fascinating. Yeah, it? it is fascinating. Yeah, yeah. it just must be a fantastic um, day at work for you. <laughs> it is. It's super interested, uh, interesting, you know, and um, always learning more. There's always more to learn as well. So, so we're also yeah. witnessing this is um, in our practice a lot of children coming to um, the clinic, and some are. You know, the parenting styles have changed so much. Mm-hmm. So once upon a time, I mean, I'm Chinese, you know, as you all know, and um, part of disciplining a child was to actually beat the child because mm-hmm. that was just, you know, derrida. And these days you can be um, jailed for that. But the parenting pendulum has swung quite up the other scale now, you know, so a lot of parents want to be the kids' best friends. Mm. So we're seeing some kids in the practice who... Mm. Um, Darling, would it be okay if we booked you in next week? And darling is three years old. <laughs> so, yeah. you know, do you want to comment on, um, I mean, can we help our children um, at a young age to, I don't know? Um, oh, well, absolutely, we can help our children. Um, you know, I, I won't say what, what are the best and what the worst. You know, I think there's all, you know, different types of parenting styles. But um, I think this is, like, I, I'm actually really glad that you said that. And I hope I'm staying on point here. But this is another reason why doing the developmental trauma work, you know, is like the childhood trauma work um, is so important. Because what we can do if we don't do that work is we'll e- either do what our parents do or we'll do the extreme opposite. So, um you know, as a parent, if we don't do that work, what we could do is, for instance, like, you know, beating your child. Well, with, well that was normal. Yeah, I'll do it to my child because that's what I know. You know, um, when you know better, you do better. And that's part of the, the work as well. Or we could do the extreme opposite and have no boundaries and let our child just run loose. And, you know, children need, you know, boundaries to stay safe and things like that. Um, so, um, yeah, it absolutely can have you know, an influence on our parenting. And obviously the cultures, you know, it used to be very okay um, to, to hit your child and children were seen and not heard. Like, 
imagine what it would be like as an adult if you're walking around and you weren't allowed to talk you know you're just allowed to be seen it said how important would you feel as a child you know or as an adult if that was the rules that you had to go by like that's trauma like that's definitely not a nurturing experience but it was very normalized and it was very okay and I think it's going in the right direction as long as it doesn't go to the other extreme you know um yeah so I I would love that discussion maybe another episode you know um where you could give us some um, tips on not to seven parenting and then <laughs> oh gosh I don't know I'm I mean, not sure if that's my you're in the middle of it now <laughs> yeah yeah I think ask me on the other side of uh, <laughs> Jodie's childhood and I well, probably well, have to ask her actually <laughs> <laughs> but you know and we have a lot of uh, teachers that come to the practice too you know primary school teachers and they often say it's so hard to discipline the child because mm-hmm. um all the parents believe the child's um half the story and disregard the teacher's um, version of events. Mm-hmm, right. You know, so it becomes very difficult because if I'm not sure whether kids tell white lies or stories, but I guess the teachers calling them actually lies. <laughs> um, <laughs> you know, it's really hard to um, help a child whose parents won't acknowledge that she or he did something that was not quite acceptable. Yeah, um, yeah, that's a difficult one, you know, because you could have a child who's shamed, um, you know, where they're told that they're bad and they're not good enough and he was like overly criticised, but doing the extreme opposite where the, the child doesn't have what we call a healthy sense of shame. Like shame is, um, shame is healthy shame. It's, it tells me I'm imperfect. Sometimes it's accompanied with guilt, which means I, I need to make amends. I need to say I'm sorry. But if there's no healthy shame where that it's at those boundaries, okay, that you know that behaviour was not okay. You're okay, but that behaviour was not, and we need to we need to go fix that that problem. You know, now we need to go say we're sorry. We're going to you know clean up that mess that you made. Um, is that that child that doesn't get a sense of healthy shame and mm-hmm. and will act out shamelessly. Um, so, um, which is also not going to be very helpful. Like if that child grows up and goes to school and gets in trouble with the teacher every day, um, it's not very good for that child's resiliency. Um, if they're never like, you know, made accountable for their behaviors. Yeah, I feel there's a whole episode of that to you, Sarah. <laughs> yeah, I mean, we could sit here and talk all day, I'm yeah. sure. And the other yeah. one that, oh, one day when I broach with, with you, Jules, is um, that very anxious child, you know. You, I mean, we have a lot of them in the practice as well. So, mm. yeah, there must be so much interesting work that you could tell us about yeah it's pretty it was so hard to condense what i was going to yeah. say yeah <laughs> so thank you for guiding me <laughs> no, that's right. no. so do you feel we've covered um what you do want to say yeah i feel like that was good mm. yeah mm. i think because we made you know as, as sarah said we could be here all day and mm, yeah. be now in a therapy session with you, <laughs> you know? yeah but um i think we will definitely if you're open to it have another episode sometimes sure yeah mm. absolutely be really useful mm. to our audience well okay. jules to wrap us up okay i would love you to share um as the first episode back in season two i would love you to share with our listeners that your three little things that you would like them to take home from today's episode okay cool well i could give you 10 little things <laughs> i'll try to just stick it stick to three so i guess if you are wanting if some of these things might have resonated for you and you're wanting to um heal from your childhood trauma um Number one, I might be biased, but seek professional um, help. Um, look for someone who is trauma-informed, mm. particularly. Um, so it could be a psychologist, a psychotherapist, a counsellor. They're all good. Um, but make sure that they are trauma-informed. Um, the Blue Knot Foundation has a really good website for people who specifically... They've got a good database for people who specifically are trained and work with um, healing childhood trauma. So that's a good one to look at if you're not sure. Um, Or talk to your GP and they can refer you to someone. Um, There's also ways to make it more affordable. Like if you're seeing a psychologist, you can get a mental health care plan. Um, You can now get 20 sessions rebated. So get a rebate for 20 sessions. Um, So because of COVID, we've got another 10. It used to be only 10 per year, but right now there's 20. Um, But there's also some other pathways you can go if you can't pay any gap. So, um, yeah, there's definitely um, some support out there for you. Uh, Number two, self-care. So if we we are 
it's really hard to update yourself. If we look at the brain, it's not like a computer, but if, you know, if we look at it as it is a computer, it's going to be really hard to update your software if your hardware isn't getting taken care of. So you've got like a slow sluggish drive and it's out in the heat and it's like, hasn't been, um, you know, looked after or maintained very well. It's going to be hard to get your brain in a place where you can take on new information and make those changes. So, um, just a few ideas one that might be is you know getting a good night's sleep you know if your child is like my child and she wakes up at 4 30 every morning go to bed at eight o'clock that's what i do and it makes such a difference um gosh when when i wasn't getting any sleep i just knew you know what that did to my brain you know eating a healthy balanced meal has a huge impact on our brain um also um try to you know if you can avoid my mind altering substances like you know alcohol or drugs unless you're prescribed and you need them um you know setting really good boundaries with work you know if you're working too much um and you're overdoing it you know that can put your brain in a, in a state of stress and we're not going to be in that you know those frontal lobes that we need to to make those changes so um yeah so that's my number two and the third one um is have a really good support network. So if you get a therapist, that's already gonna be one person to your support network. Um, have a family and friends, you know, partners, be part of your support because even if you see a therapist once a week, you've got the you know other hours of that day and six days a week that you're going to need to have some support with you know one hour a week is really not enough so you know someone that you can talk to and someone who makes you feel better after you talk to them if you've got a friend who after you talk to them you feel worse because maybe they make it about themselves or they interrupt you um don't don't share this stuff with them don't talk to them like but have them as maybe someone to you know have fun with but not as your support person um, if you don't have anyone in your life, and sometimes if you've grown up in a dysfunctional family and, um, you know, with that childhood trauma, you don't have a support person, there are loads of, um, supportive groups that are free. Um, there is, uh, you know, there's Alcoholics Anonymous, um, Narcotics Anonymous, there's adult children of alcoholics and dysfunctional families. They're a really good one for doing that childhood trauma. Codependency Anonymous, um, very welcoming, very, you know, you can get um, a sponsor, someone that you can call when you're really triggered and struggling. Um, and they're free, you know, and they, you get free coffee and biscuits with those meetings. Um, but there's also like other groups out there as well. So, um, uh, you know, you're, you're not alone, mm. you know, even if you feel like you are, there is um, supports out there. So yeah, and I, I know you said three, but this is not really four, but I just want to say, um, have hope. Like if you're really worried that you feel like it's too late to make any changes, even though, you know, our childhood years are the times when our brain is changing the most, your brain changes until the day you die. You know, that's why stroke victims who, you know, stop being able to walk because part of their brains died, start to walk again. It's because, you know, um, our brain can make neural new neural connections and things like that. So, you know, anything we learn, we can unlearn and we can learn new things so we can, we can heal um, no matter how late it might be. So, mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you, Jules. It was a pleasure to chat and have an episode, first episode back of the season, which is exciting. Um, and if you would like to, would you like to leave a bit of a, like a where page people can, listeners might be able to contact you? Yeah, sure. Uh, so it's, juliepreston.net so just my name perfect .net awesome nice and easy and we will put that in the show notes so people can um, see it visually as well for those who need to um, but yeah thank you again and that is a wrap for episode one of season two great thank you a quick disclaimer these episodes are not intended to replace help treatment or advice from your healthcare professionals the information in today's podcast is purely for educational purposes and is not designed to diagnose or treat any conditions. This is just a friendly reminder that we do not know you or your child or those around you and therefore do not know your specific needs. Please seek guidance from your healthcare professionals surrounding your concerns.